about. Uh, I want you to think about think about the pictures that you have displayed in your house. So what are the pictures that you have displayed? And then why did you choose those pictures? Uh, I, I'm going to wait till Cynthia gets out of the room and then pull up a picture that's not displayed in our house, but is one of my absolute favorite pictures of all of our children. Pull this right. So this is my man, Sam. And you think about the reason, like, you display certain pictures. I mean, often we'll display pictures because we want to present ourselves, you know, at our very best. Uh, you know, this is not the family picture that we have. We have one that's very curated and presented like us at our, uh, as, as fine as we can be. Uh, or you want to have pictures of like your fun experiences or significant moments in your life. But one of the reasons this is my favorite picture because it probably reveals more about my man Sam's personality than any other pictures. And I love this picture because he is physically expressing what I feel every time I hear, okay, let's gather around to take a picture. <laughs> See, he dislikes them as much as I do. He, uh, he just doesn't have to hide it. Like, and um, <clears throat> So some of you think, all right, why do we put up? All right, we can, we can pull Sam down. <laughs> Why do we put up the pictures that we do? What do we want them to uh, demonstrate or display about us? What do we want them to tell about kind of who we are? Now, 18, uh, or right after World War I, there uh, was a group of uh, British soldiers after World War I, and they kind of stumbled upon what was like this archaeological, archaeologist just dream. It's like the real Indiana Jones, but they stumbled upon this city called Duro Europes, and this was a city that in the year 256 was besieged by a, uh, I, I don't know what army, uh, besieged the city, so they surrounded the city, um, and in order to try and survive, the residents of this city just took everything they had and just brought them into the city walls and tried to endure the siege. Um, they didn't make it. Eventually the army came in, kind of did the pillaging and plundering thing, and then left the city. But then very shortly after the kind of the devastation of the invasion, this huge sandstorm came and covered up the entire city. And for 1,800 years, it just laid dormant, just laid buried. And then just after World War I, uh, these explorers found the city and they started excavating. It was like this, this historian's dream because you had almost this entire city, uh, especially in the walls that had just been preserved. And so pull up a cut. Here's a couple of the pictures from... So this is the Jewish synagogue that they found and were able to kind of clean and excavate. And you see these incredible pictures all around the walls. These pictures were used to, to illustrate and to teach... So here's one of just kind of the long wall in the synagogue. Uh, there was also a, a church found one of could be one of the uh, first churches. So pull up this next one. This was uh, the church, and that's one of the first baptistries. And you see it's a much smaller uh, building, but you can see there were remnants of these beautiful paintings. Pull up. 
Right, so this might be, there's multiple kind of images that are in the running, but this might be the oldest image of Jesus. Now pull up a couple others and we'll go back to this one. So these are, this is just kind of graffiti they found in people's houses. It's like sketches on the wall, but it's actually these various, I only have two of them here, but there's about 12 different images of Jesus uh, in different scenes. So this is where he's raising the girl from the dead and sitting on the mountain and speaking. Uh, go back. We'll get to that one. Say, so yeah, go back to Jesus. And so what, I wonder, what do you notice about this image of Jesus? Like, what are they trying to tell us? Now, what's fascinating is just kind of what Jesus is wearing. He's wearing the uniform, the garb, of a Greco-Roman philosopher. That's a philosopher's outfit. So, like, in the ancient world, you didn't, like, we, you probably wear clothes. I don't know why you chose the wonderful, beautiful clothes you chose this morning. But, you know, we kind of choose clothes that, you know, either we can afford or, like, express our individuality. But in the ancient world, your, your clothes, you wore uh, things to represent what you did. So, you know, we still have that in our world to some degree. There's a handful of professions where if you see them wearing kind of the uniform, you would know instantly, oh, that's a, that's a police officer, that's a doctor, that's a nurse. There's not a lot in our world, but there's still a handful. But in the ancient world, everybody, you kind of wore uh, your, your, your uniform in essence. And what's interesting, in this picture, they're presenting Jesus as wearing the uniform of a philosopher. And you think, all right, well, why? Like, is this just second century Syrian cultural appropriation of Jesus? Did he really wear this? Why are they presenting him wearing that outfit? Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of philosophy or philosophers. Now you can pull out this ne next one, Liz. Somebody, I majored in philosophy, uh, so somebody sent me this meme recently. That's the philosopher's statue. You know, you think, all right, the philosopher is someone who sits around and ponders deep thoughts about the world. You know, thoughts like, if it's Alvin and the chipmunks, then, you know, what is Alvin? or other deep mysteries about life. Now, we can go back to Jesus. But in the ancient world, that's not what philosophers were. Their job, what they did is they were teachers, the Hebrew, the prophets. They were people who taught you how to live. Everybody in the ancient world knew that life was short. Life was precarious. It could be here today and gone tomorrow. And they didn't want to waste it. They didn't want to lose it. So the philosophers are the ones who were, uh, it was their job to teach you how to live well. And so what's interesting, in the very first second centuries when uh, Christians were trying to teach what Jesus came to do, one of the primary categories they used was that of philosopher. It's like the story of Justin, we call him Justin Martyr. Before he got tagged Justin Martyr, he was Justin the philosopher. And part of his conversion is that he was trying to seek uh, a pure philosophy that would, that would help him have a meaningful life. As he kind of fumbled through life, came to a point in his mid-twenties where he was disillusioned with all the, the trappings of the world. And he met this elderly, wise, humble Christian man who told him, have you heard about the great, the greatest philosophers to ever live are the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and they will point you to the ultimate philosopher who is wisdom embodied. 
So he found this, this one who was going to teach him uh, how to live. That's what the philosopher does, teach you how to live. And so our big picture, if you have the bulletin or kind of our first thing, like the, the big idea, kind of my, my thesis statement this morning, the big idea is that Jesus' central work while he was here on earth, one of his central things he came to do was to preach and to teach. And we're going through this because we're restructuring in the fall some of our Sunday morning uh, structure service. We can have our worship time at 9.30, then a discipleship hour so we can have classes at 11. And part of the goal is to create the structure so we can encounter his teaching. And we want to see, sorry, why was it so central that Jesus came to teach? Came to be our philosopher. Now again, we might have to do some mental adjustments because that word might not resonate with us like it did in the second century. So maybe some other words you might think of, you know, teacher, trainer, coach. Those are the kind of words we use to help, uh, you know, kind of take someone along and train them in a certain way that they're supposed to live, be, know, or do something. So one of the central acts that Jesus did when he came is he came preaching and he came teaching. We saw that last week. If you have your Bibles, you can look at Luke 4. And we saw how Luke sets up all of Jesus' ministry in chapter 4 with this, this frame where he starts in verse 14 that and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and report went about him throughout the entire land. And he taught them in their synagogues. And he was glorified by all. And then he frames chapter 4, concludes it, where Jesus starts to leave Capernaum and they want him to stay. And he says to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for this is why I was sent. This is why I came. And then we spent a couple years in Matthew's gospel, and Matthew, uh, his whole gospel is framed about Jesus' teaching ministry. It even structures it where he gives five major sermons, teaching blocks, and then they're balanced with Jesus' teaching in word, and then teaching in deed. And you can look at Matthew, he even frames, just like Luke, all of Jesus' Galilean ministry in 4.37, and then in 9.35, he frames it with this repetition. He says the same thing both places, and that's to key you in on, all right, this is what this whole section is about. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So that's framed. This is what he came to do. So kind of the big idea this morning is like when Jesus came to earth, that's what he came to do. He came as our teacher, to teach and preach. And so... And you think about, all right, well, why did he do that? Why do we need that? Why is that important? And if you think about it, you know, who are kind of the contemporary philosophers now? Uh, who, you know, or if you even think about, like, do you even think about how, does Jesus have anything to say about how I just live my normal everyday life? Or is this teaching very kind of ethereal or abstract? You know, who are our modern day philosophers? I mean, we have, you know, gurus in every kind of sphere of people you look to for wisdom and direction, who can kind of give you the best practices in that sphere. Like if you're in finance, you look to Warren Buffett or probably the greatest philosopher in kind of the American context over the last 30 years is Oprah. More people look to Oprah to say, all right, what, what does it mean to live well? 
to, to live well. Or philosophers of productivity, like David Allen, philosophers of organization, or Marie Kondo, philosophers of leadership, or Jim Collins. Or One thing that really fascinates me is there's a whole group of philosophers that a lot of young men have kind of latched onto. People like Jordan Peterson, or Jocko Willick, or Tim Ferriss, who are kind of, right, this is what it means to, to live well. Yes, right, does Jesus have anything to say in these arenas? And you know, we have this, it's kind of interesting, there's a modern kind of disconnect between information and life. And how do you bridge that disconnect? So Jesus came as a teacher, and, and life is his subject. He says, I, I want you to have life, and have it to the full. And so Jesus comes teaching. That's what he came to do the first time. And, kind of like second point on that, is Jesus is still teaching now. He hasn't retired he hasn't quit. He's not on an extended summer vacation where he stopped teaching. He's still teaching. He's still the primary teacher of the church and he continues to exercise that ministry through his ministers and through his people. He's still exercising it. The way he does it is through his people. And you can see, even in Luke, one of the beautiful things that both Matthew and Luke give you is the way Jesus teaches in formal settings. So like formal, kind of almost academic, kind of quasi-classroom settings. And then he teaches in informal settings. You can see in chapter 4 in Luke where Jesus launches into the synagogues and he, he opens up the scroll. And he begins to teach. And then the very next day, he's with uh, Peter, James, John, Andrew at their work. And they've been working all day. And he takes the boat. And they're at their work. He is teaching. So he does it in formal and informal times. And this is exactly what God told us to do. Like in Deuteronomy 6, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today will be on your heart... And you will teach them diligently to your children. You talk of them when you sit and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So just informally as to be worked into the very fabric of your life and life's rhythms. And you know, that's one of the challenges is to uh, take advantage of all of the informal times where we can be learning and teaching and growing. So Christ is active. He's engaged in his teaching ministry every time Christians are teaching their children at home or at school or anytime believers are together talking, conversating, encouraging one another. Those conversations, those interactions are informal ways that Christ is still teaching his people. But we also need kind of the formal ways that must take place in a formal sense. He's specifically called and commissioned certain people to, uh, to teach his word. You know, in the new covenant, God promises the way he's going to feed his people. He says, I'm going to give them shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So a central role of the ministerial task is to provide the context and the teaching so Christ can teach his people. So one of our core convictions here is that God's people deserve to hear God's voice. And God's voice comes through his word that is both preached, we preach it, and we teach it. So that's one of the reasons we're making some of those shifts. So we administer 
that word. And you know, when that word is to come, part of it has to come in multiple formats. That's one of the challenges. You know, one of the reasons we age segment kids and move them through school is because it's easier to teach them at those specific levels. But then you think about like a family, a body, a group of people. You know, how do you meet people and teach them uh, where they are? Because everybody in some ways are in different places. The image the Bible often used for those two types of teaching is you provide milk to some and then meat, solid food to others. And you think spiritually, you know, one of the things John loves this in his gospel is to take uh, things we know physically and, and use those to teach us uh, about who we are spiritually. So the physical is like a window into the spiritual. And you think this is true of anybody as they grow and develop. You have to have your taste buds. They have to develop. We had this battle this past week. Because one, uh, one of our favorite meals in life, Cynthia makes this wonderful, beautiful uh, smoked salmon with rosemary and there's teriyaki sauce and then we grill asparagus and Brussels sprouts and we grill up you know, mushrooms and onions. It's, just so, it's, it's, our, it's my celebratory meal every time we want to celebrate. But now the problem with this meal is at least three of our four kids... <laughs> Act like when we feed them this meal that they are being tortured <laughs> to such a degree that I asked Cynthia to cook it this past week and she's like, I don't know, I kind of have like PTSD the last time we tried to feed that to the kids. And so no, we, no, like, what we, ha we have to train their loves so they will appreciate quality things. And so last Monday, we cooked it, we made it, we were celebrating the gift. The Lord uh, gave us such a wonderful summer together, and we're starting school, so we were going to celebrate. And she cut off, I mean, we're talking the most minuscule, barely perceptible with the naked eye, <laughs> bite of salmon and asparagus and at least three of the four utterly revolt. I mean, if, if, you walk, if you ever walk by our house and you hear screams that sound like torture, do not call defects. If it's dinner time, we're just trying to get them to eat salmon. It's not torture. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to train the taste buds and the sensibilities. Like, you don't believe it now, but there are better things in life than frozen chicken nuggets. And we want to help you taste those. And you know, spiritually, our soul, we need the same thing. You know, we need to grow so we can grow. And that's one of the things that the author of the Hebrews, he laments, because he's like, by this point, you should be eating meat, but you can't take it. You just need the milk because you haven't grown and developed. And you know, spiritually, there's a lot of things that uh, are kind of like milk that couldn't be good. And you can, you can, they can be helpful, but you don't want to live off those things. So for example, if your primary spiritual diet are just Instagram memes with inspiring quotes on there, like that, that's good and can help you, but that's milk. I had a good friend that I saw, it was 25 years ago, we went to high school together and I ran into him and he knew I was in the ministry and we kind of struck up a conversation and they had started going to a church in the Atlanta area and I was kind of surprised uh, they were going there and I was like, oh really? Well tell me about like, why do, you, why do you like it? And he goes, oh it's amazing. There's not one sermon that goes by where I don't get at least one Georgia football illustration. 
That, and so I was training to be a pastor. Oh, so that's interesting. So you, you, you appreciate that. He's like, oh yeah, I can't handle a sermon with no Georgia football in it. <laughs> okay. Um, that, I mean, that tells a lot about just where you are spiritually. I, I, good. I'm glad we can start out there. But let's hope that we will progress and develop to a higher level of maturity. And so that's part of the goal. We've got to start where we are, but then move and grow and develop. And so the full counsel of God, all of his riches, his word is unfolded and developed and applied to us at every age and every stage. That's one of the formal tasks of the church. How can we provide the whole range of what's needed to stay healthy and strong? Another responsibility, kind of a formal task of the church is to preserve and translate and interpret the word uh, according to kind of the rule of faith to help defend it against the opposition in the world. We're called to be a pillar and a, a buttress, the foundation of the truth. So to be a confessional community. But why do we need this? You know, we live in a world of lies and deceptions and we cannot live without truth and without a firm grasp on it. The church will fall prey just to all manner of heresy and error and silliness. And so we got to be committed to Jesus' ministry of teaching. And he's still teaching today. And every Christian has a responsibility uh, in their sphere to carry on that ministry and take part of it in some way. So that's kind of big idea. He's still teaching. Uh, here's something I want to think about for a moment. Uh, is Now, how was Jesus taught? And then how does he teach? Because I find this really interesting. And all, like yesterday when I was working through this, I was being plagued because I hear in the back of my mind my doctoral supervisor who would just, I mean, giant red marks all over my dissertation. In the back of his mind, he would say, nothing interesting. I don't want to hear anything interesting. If it doesn't advance your argument, cut it out. And this next section, like the ghost of that is lurking because this next section doesn't advance what I, my, my key point is that Jesus came, the central to his ministry was a teaching ministry and we as a church have to carry on that ministry. But this next point I just find so interesting. <laughs> And since he's not here, I'm not going to cut it out. <laughs> but if you think I should, you can tell me later. But I just think, right, well, how was Jesus taught? Like, how did education take place, like, when he was growing up? And there's this, uh, this fascinating uh, book, probably won't pronounce that right, uh, Maristella Budicelli. And she wrote this book called The Chosen Few, How Education Shaped Jewish History, 70 A.D. to 1492. And so, so basic Jewish education in the first century, you know, the first day of school, it would happen in the transition. So uh, prim I don't know how female education happened, but this was at least with the males. Um, the transition from being weaned by the mother, mother's responsibility up through about three years old, transition happens once they're weaned uh, to now becomes the father formal responsibility. The first responsibility for the child is their education. So first day of school, the father would wrap the son in his prayer shawl, and then he would take him and deposit them at the school door, at the, at the, at the, the threshold of the entry to the synagogue. And uh, he said, I'm giving my living bundle, and in the bundle would be a prayer book and a piece of, of hard candy. 
Now, remember, in this world, hard candy is not something that's at every gas station you walk into. There are no gas stations. I mean, this is a world where kids would talk about, like, Christmas was the greatest day of my life because I got a pear and a piece of candy. And so this was a precious thing. And what it wanted to, they wanted to symbolize uh, is that worship and education are inseparable. This, is, this one is the path to the other, and it should be a sweet delight. That as you grow, you're, you're tasting a word that is sweet. It is more precious than honey. And so they would deposit uh, the child, and the child would begin. Kind of the method as you would start off the curriculum uh, was, it was just memorization in the beginning. So you'd memorize all of the Psalms, all 150. Then you'd move on, memorize the Torah, which is you know uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. You'd memorize that. You would start in the very center of the Torah at Leviticus 16, starting with the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. You would begin with the first line, be holy as I am holy. And then you would work out uh, from there. The way you would memorize it was translate it. You would memorize it in the Hebrew, but you would translate it into whatever language was your common uh, spoken tongue. And the whole goal was to get it into you uh, for you know it was just kind of assumed that this should be done probably by the time you're eight you would have all of that uh, completed you would you wouldn't just kind of recite it you would chant it if you ever seen even uh, Jewish boys now where they're learning they're rocking and they're chanting and it has this this uh, this this beautiful kind of hypnotic quality then after eight you would shift to the second stage as then you begin to learn the kind of the interpretations the classical interpretations uh, of the of the fathers, the masters, this became, you know, the Talmud as it got uh, solidified. And the whole goal here, from 8 to about 13, when you had your bar mitzvah and you'd move into your kind of manhood, was to mastery, to be able to think. So, you know, you started at 3, but you were done by the time you were 13. Daily schedule, you generally would wake up at 5, and you'd have your first study session from uh, 5 to 7. That's when you'd first study the Word. That was to prepare you and prep prime you, and then you would have a collective, a community worship service where you would worship and, and, and pray and sing and worship on the, the text that you just studied from 7 to 8. At 8, you would break and go back home for breakfast and do some of your morning chores. Around uh, 10, you would go back and have your next major study time from 10 to about noon. And during that time, the way it was worked is you'd have uh, one or two of the younger boys would get paired up with one of the older boys and the older boys you know they're the ones anywhere from 8 to 12 or walking the younger ones through the the passages that they are supposed to be learning and memorizing you'd have your your lunch break you'd have a light lunch at noon uh, the older boys would start again from 1 to 4 all the younger boys would be done for the day and they could go play do you know whatever take a nap do whatever they're going to do and then the day ends at 5 with another collective worship uh, service so it's pretty remarkable you know, rhythm. And it just makes me wonder, I wonder if we sell ourselves short in what we expect from children. I mean, there's the expectation of what they would know and what they would have memorized. And you know, some kids were just more precocious. They would just pick it up. So when it kind of the marvels by the time Jesus is 12 and he's engaging with all of the leaders at the temple, it means he's, he's engaging with the, the interpretations and he knows all the different... Uh, 
kind of the, the Talmudic interpretations. So pretty remarkable uh, what they would go through. So that's the education, that basic education that Jesus had as a kid. Now let's jump ahead and just think, all right, that's how he learned. But then how did he teach? And then uh, tried to order this in some kind of ordered way, but couldn't really get my handle on it. So I'll just kind of give you some, some kind of thoughts about all right, how did he teach. His paradigm is the two things that he would do is he would open up scriptures, but then he also opened up the heart. So kind of the paradigm for what he does when he teaches is in Luke chapter 24 after the resurrected Christ meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what does he, he do? He opens up the scriptures to show how they point to him. And you remember how they, they processed or thought about the experience they had when Jesus was teaching them? They said, didn't our hearts burn? when he opened up the scriptures to us. You know, he, he teaches in such a way where he opens up the scriptures to open up the mind to inflame the heart. He captures you with both word and then spirit. You know, it's, it's light and then heat. That's why people like Peter, when people start to abandon Jesus, and he says, are you guys going to leave too? And they say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. See, these are so much more than just dry, academic words. These are words of life. He opens up mind, and he opens up hearts. And so what is the thing he teaches? Like, what does he, he, he teach? He teaches you how to see. He gives you eyes to see. See the world as it is. See as it really is. See uh, him as he really is. What he came to do allows you to see you as you really are. You know, the, his word is like a mirror where we can see ourselves truly. You know, anyone in the room over about nine years old is fully aware of the utter, our, our total, how skillful we are at self-deception and not seeing ourselves as we truly are. And that's one of the things he helps you. His great gift is he helps you to see you into your own hearts. He helps you to see, you know, kind of the excellency of spiritual things. You know, he helps you to see what does it profit you if you gain the entire world and then forfeit your soul. So he'll help you see how do you not lose your soul in life. He'll teach you the beauty of his word and his world and the, the necessity of his word and his work. One of the things he's trying to do is train your loyalties and loves. One of the classic ways, like to Justin Martyr, that he would talk about the gift that Christ is, is he, he teaches us what's true, he helps us love what's beautiful, and then he helps us do what is good. I mean, can you think of a better life if, if this was on your tombstone? They, they knew what was true, they loved what's beautiful, they did what is good. That's a life lived well. And Justin said, that's what he trains us to do. That's what he teaches us to do. So he teaches the heart, not just words of knowledge, but also grace. Gives us light, and uh, the light of truth and the love of truth. Not just what to believe, but also how to, how to live. And one of the things he teaches is, you know, spiritual darkness is worse than natural darkness. You know, most kids, they know enough to know to be afraid 
of natural darkness. But we lose that fear of spiritual darkness. And he comes and he brings light. So what should we do? We need to labor. We need to want to have, all right, we need Christ as our teacher. We must see our need for his teaching. That he's our great morning star. He's the light that can light our way. I mean, it is kind of a remarkable thought to think about. Nobody comes into the world formed. Like, you need to be taught. You need to be trained. And then you even think about a society, like we're sitting in a school. We, we understand that this is a communal project to train up people so they can know the basics on how to live as productive citizens. And we actually spend a lot of money on that. Now, I mean, all the kids are out, or most of the kids are out, but if any of your kids were complaining about why they have to go back to school, you know, I told the, we had a bunch of kids in our uh, church in Alabama who really resisted going to school, and one day I made the mistake of telling them, I said, you should, you should appreciate school, because we as the taxpayers are paying about $10,000 a year for you to go to school. But they actually said, well, can you just give me the money? I'd rather have it. So, well, that's not how it works. But we, we value it. And so we're, we're, we're paying it. So it's kind of a remarkable, remarkable thing. Uh, but so we need to appreciate this gift that Jesus has. And Jesus is eager to teach. You know, there's no, uh, Matthew Henry says, there's no soul, no, there's no soul so dull or ignorant that he will not improve. And then there's no soul so high and lofty that he won't also improve. So no matter where you are, you can be, be taught and trained. So institutionally, one of the most important things we can do as a church is provide context and opportunities for how you can, uh, how we can teach and we can learn and to uh, grow in his teaching. And so one of his central tasks while he was on earth was to preach and to teach. And one of our central tasks is to kind of create spaces so we can experience uh, both of those things. So we think about like our second hour, kind of that discipleship hour, the type of classes and things we want to do. You know, one of my long-term dreams for this is I would love to have classes that can help you in three areas. We talk about the gospel, and if you want to experience his power, what, how do you experience the power of the gospel? Well, it's sound doctrine. There's things you need to know. It's renewal of the Holy Spirit. It has to refresh and continually renew you. And then it's faithful living. There's a certain way you live in faithfulness and obedience to the things you, things you know. And I would love to have just a whole curriculum that can help us in all three areas. Sound doctrine, things we need to know. Bible studies, uh, theology 101, what are the things we need to know? But then also, renewal, what are the practices we need to engage in so we can stay spiritually vital and fresh? Practices of prayer, practices of Sabbath, practices of rest and renewal. And then what are the things we're supposed to do to live well? You know, things like parenting class, things like uh, financial peace, other, the, other things like marriage. You know, how do we live well? You know, that used to be the basic curriculum uh, that the church would give for the Christian life. Called the catechism. The catechism was three things. You memorize the Apostles' Creed. You learn that this is the basics of what we believe. You memorize the Lord's Prayer. This is what we're supposed to hope in. This is our faith. This is our hope, what we're longing for. And then you memorize the Ten Commandments. This is how God wants us to live faithfully in His world. So that's the kind of core curriculum of godliness and His teaching. 
But big picture this morning, what I want you to see, this is a little unusual. Next uh, couple weeks are kind of unusual sermons. So if you're visiting here kind of for the first time or first couple weeks, our normal habit is to pick out a book of the Bible and just kind of move through that. So starting in the fall, our fall book is going to be Exodus. We're going to be going through Exodus. But this month we're kind of laying the, the ground rule or laying the, laying the foundation for some of the things we're going to be doing. But Jesus comes. He teaches teaches in word, teaches in deed. He teaches uh, in, with pictures and stories. He also teaches with actions and things to do. And one of the things he's given us to teach us about what we need and what his grace gives to us is the Lord's Supper. And every week we come to communion and come to the table because that's him teaching us that, all right, just as your, your body can't live without bread, your soul can't live without the bread of life, which is my word. And my body is broken so that yours can be made whole again. And he teaches that in order to come into God's presence and have our relationship with him renewed and refreshed, we must experience the forgiveness of our sins. Sin has created this relational block and barrier so we can't come into his presence. And he says, my son, this, the, the cup represents his blood that's shed so you can experience the forgiveness of sin. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he says, do this in remembrance of me and took the cup. So we'll have communion servers in multiple places, two in the front, one in the back. If you need gluten-free, there'll be a gluten-free station in the back. And then you come, you take the wafer, and you dip it in the cup, and it's your uh, weekly reminder, the weekly teaching. Uh, Paul says you, know, you need to be reminded of these things you know. It's the weekly teaching uh, that we live off his word, and we are utterly dependent on his blood to provide the cleansing for our sins. Once we're in place, you come.